Welcome to Historical Jesus. I'm Mark Vinette. The Jesus myth theory is a fringe theory supported by a small group of dedicated, active, and vocal scholars and mythicists who argue that in the Gospels, the story of Jesus is largely mythological. This understanding deviates from the mainstream historical view, and most historians reject the theory that Jesus never existed. Born in the Second Century is a podcast hosted by Chris Palmero, a secular, self-proclaimed counter-evangelist and former Catholic. He argues that Christianity began almost 100 years after the imagined death of Christ. Let's listen to his provocative, alternative view of the historical Jesus. Now, as for the Gospels, We can immediately see that all of them are based on the Gospel of Mark in some way, and even the Gospel of John, which is the most free-floating composition, borrows elements from Mark and engages with and criticizes them. We get the sense that the stories of Jesus in the Gospels are actually tiny, self-contained narratives strung together to give the illusion of a complete ministry, pearls on a string. We get weird comments here and there from Jesus, like when he talks about the time of John the Baptist being in the distant past, even though John the Baptist had just gotten iced a few paragraphs earlier. And Jesus's main opponents in the Gospels are characters like Pharisees, scribes, and lawyers who sound suspiciously like the early rabbis who were reconstructing Judaism after the temple had been destroyed in the war with the Romans. These early legalizing rabbis, who in fact didn't really exist until the very end of the first century. In the Gospels, Jesus opposes the Jews generally, who were already spoken of as belonging to a distinct and separate faith, something which wouldn't make sense considering that Christianity hadn't even been created yet, and the characters should pretty much all still be considered Jews at this point. The narrative of Jesus itself looks to be a compromise or series of compromises crafted for a church whose members' views about Jesus were at odds. And the trial of Jesus is said to be instigated by the Jews, which is highly suspicious given the fact that they didn't hold the civil power in that era. The whole story is possibly an allegory for the mainstream Jewish rejection of the idea of a suffering Messiah. It's a possibility, and that's the kind of thing we have to consider when re-examining these writings. We also encounter the Acts of the Apostles, a document that supposedly relates the history of Christianity after the resurrection. It conflicts mercilessly with Paul's letters. It presents Paul as a willing subordinate of the Jerusalem-based College of the Apostles, this zealot who, in his letters, would curse anyone who preached a different gospel than him, is now made into a company man. And that's far from the only problem with this document, which is basically the main source of early church history and has been for almost 2,000 years. We get the distinct sense that the author is writing at a time long after Christianity was established, and he takes time to explain the backstory of why Christians are scattered throughout the world. It's a basic founding myth, because in his time, there are Christians scattered throughout the world. And so he has to get from point A, which is the hazy and distant past, to point B, which is his own time. And he gives us an entire series of these sloppy, questionable foundation legends. He says that Christianity spread outward from Jerusalem under the strict oversight of the apostles. But for some reason, wherever they go, these same apostles keep encountering pre-existing Christians. Another thing, the author has to add characters like James, the leader of the church, that weren't yet invented when the Gospels were written. But the problem is that there's already an apostle named James, and so the author has to get him out of the way. 
So he has him killed off screen, basically. And then a few paragraphs later, he trots his own James character onto the stage. And then Peter in Acts, in what is supposed to be like the first few months of Christianity, gives a speech where he describes the religion as having been preached since ancient days. And he does not mean this metaphorically. The author just slipped. Acts of the Apostles is like the gift that keeps on giving when it comes to seeing just how the ancient church fabricated its founding myth. But suffice it to say that for now, it presents too many problems for the traditional view of Christianity. Yet at the same time, we find nothing in it that conflicts with the idea that Christianity developed as a series of distinct sects that were later rolled into one religion. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-218-6010. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in... Anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-218-6010. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-218-6010. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. Now, the New Testament contains two letters that pass under the name of Peter. Neither were written by Peter. In fact, no New Testament book was written by its stated author at all. But the first letter of Peter seems like an attempt by mainstream Christianity at synthesizing the letters of Paul, trying to digest the religion and the churches of Paul like a snake trying to digest a meal. It uses the term Christian, First Peter and Acts of the Apostles are the only two books in the New Testament to do so, and that's evidence in itself of a late date. But we also see something in First Peter which is highly important for our purposes and which will become a trend in most of the early Christian texts. The idea that the Christians are being persecuted, but the persecutors are never definitely identified, and the reason for persecution is never really specified. It's just a vague idea that Christians are being persecuted simply for being Christian. The earliest Christians did experience conflict on a local level, but that most of this conflict came at the hands of what we would frankly call other Christians. The Roman Empire was not this militarized police state with security cameras on every corner looking for any instance of deviation from the state cult. The Romans tried and prosecuted people for crimes that were brought to their attention by informants for the most part, and no one hated each other and was more willing to drop the dime on one another than the earliest Christians. For example, the Church of Matthew's community calls out the Church of Paul's community and puts a condemnation of them into the very mouth of Jesus. So we're going to have to reimagine the entire narrative around persecution in the early church. Sometimes, the persecutors of the ancient Christians are referred to as Jews, and in those cases, we have to hold open the distinct possibility that those persecutors were actually other Christians who were simply closer to traditional Judaism than the persecuted people would have preferred. In the New Testament, we also find the letters of John. These are supposedly the records of an isolated community, almost like it's in the mountains, like in the film The Last Valley. 
But even in this tiny, out-of-the-way community, we still hear about conflicts with rival teachers and rival sects. Many deceivers have gone out into the world who don't acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. And there are two ways of looking at something like this. Either the traditional narrative is correct, and this religion is suddenly contending with rival teachers within a few years of its founding, or that those rival teachers had always existed, because the original Christian sects were always separate and merely thought that they had all come from the same source. And when they see rival teachers operating on their turf, they view them, frankly, as deviants. And we also have books like Revelation, which is actually a repurposed Jewish apocalypse. And in this book, we see that the early Christians are right back at it again, at each other's throats, and the author actually shanghais the cosmic Jesus into service as a mouthpiece to condemn the rival churches that he doesn't like. We may rightfully question whether it makes more sense that these desperate controversies emerge from Christianity itself, or whether they in fact predate official Christianity, and now, decades into its history, the various rival sects of Christianity are beginning to converge, and they're more like elements of a stew that hasn't been cooked evenly. Now, it may be asked, though, in all this, why I place the origins of Christianity in the second century instead of the first. I mean, what's the difference? Once you remove the central figure of Jesus, couldn't it have developed just the same way but in the first century? The answer to that has to do with two things. One is that when we look at the first Christian documents that appear to contain something which we would now recognize as Christianity, and those would be from about 200 AD, we work backwards from those and find that a few decades before those writings, our track goes cold. And so we either have to assume that Christianity arose in the first century, but entered a period of stasis for about a hundred years before it began to develop again or that the entire religion itself was born in the second century, and that those early texts accurately reflect that. And the other reason is that the second century itself was like the great age of popular religious feeling in this era. There were elements of the salvation and mystery cults for centuries prior, elements of the changes going on within Judaism and Platonism and Stoicism and other thought systems. But in the second century, we are now well within the era where these developments have become fully popularized and almost charlatanized, if you will. I'm Mark Vinette. Thank you for sharing your time with me. Doctors endorse it, nutritionists recommend it, and customers love it. Calotrin Healthy Weight Loss. Ron in Texas lost 35 pounds. Marie in Pennsylvania lost 117 pounds with Calotrin. Diane not only lost weight, but she also found relief from arthritis. Lynn lost over 45 pounds. Calotrin contains collagen, the most abundant protein naturally occurring in the human body which decreases as we age. Taking Calitrin promotes better sleep, more energy, less joint pain, and best of all, weight loss. Calitrin has an amazing 86% success rate with their 90-day supply. And this week, take advantage of their President's Day sale. Buy the 90-day supply and get an extra month free plus free shipping. Ordering is so easy. Just text the word HISTORY to the code 
30605 and we'll send you a link to the special offer. Again, text HISTORY, that's H-I-S-T-O-R-Y, using the code 30605.